You're listening to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network. That's how we out here now. That's how we out here now. Welcome to the Riverwise Podcast. The Riverwise Podcast, in conjunction with the Riverwise Magazine, is an independent media outlet that's bringing you stories of resilience, visionary resistance, education, and activism, focusing on the self-determination and sustainability of our communities in and around the neighborhoods of Detroit. We bring you the voices and the stories of the things that are happening that are most pertinent in our world in this year. My name is Amas Muhammad. And with me, as always, is the managing editor of Riverwise Magazine, Mr. Eric Campbell. Peace, everybody, and thank you for joining us uh, on what I, what I would call a special episode. We're going to talk about some of the actions that are taking place around the city of Detroit, actions that are taking place throughout the, the country and the world right now um, in the midst of uh, the pandemic and all the other things we have going on as we approach the school year as well. We have with us... From Detroit, we'll breathe, Nakia Wallace. Nakia, thank you so much for joining us today, and we really look forward to speaking with you. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. So we want to start by, we want to start by asking you, Nakia, maybe if you could give us a little bit of uh, a, a background as far as your upbringing in Detroit and what brought you to the leadership of Detroit, we'll breathe. You came up in, in the city of Detroit? Yeah, so uh, I was born and raised in the city of Detroit. I'm a proud graduate of Detroit Public Schools, a Cass mm. Tech graduate, as well as a proud Wayne State graduate. As you came out of Wayne State, uh, were you already involved in, in politics, in uh, resistance politics during your time uh, at school? So this is an interesting <laughs> question that I always am like struggling to find a way to articulate. So I think that when you grow up as a black person, particularly as a poor black person, uh in in a large in a largely black or brown city, you you already participate in the politics of resistance mm-hmm. <laughs> in one way or another. And so let me be like very clear, you know, 
people are resisting every single day, um, whether it be in in the form of like fighting evictions, whether it be in the form of like you can't afford your electricity bill or your water bill, and so you get somebody else to turn it back on for you. That that is that is a form of resistance, and so I kind of grew up definitely in an in a family and in an environment that was determined to just resist systems of oppression and so that that came out in a number of different ways particularly around fighting for public education fighting against state takeovers fighting against school closings fighting against emergency managers and so a lot of that um i was involved in throughout middle school and high school uh and that laid kind of the the foundation for where we are now yeah the oppression that we're talking about, of course, is going on in urban uh, majority black cities all across the country. But, you know, when people ask me about Detroit, what makes Detroit stand out? It's, it's, it's just that the fact that we're dealing with those oppressions every day. But on top of that, you know, we've had to deal with the you, know, you mentioned the emergency manager and the the bankruptcy, the bankruptcy proceedings that occurred in 2013. Those are all, you know, things that we have we're dealing with on top of, you know, the everyday to day struggle of you know, paying the bills and, and, and keeping everything on and getting our kids to school. So, yeah, that's well put. And uh, we definitely appreciate that that perspective. Right now, uh, and Mas, you jump in whenever you, whenever you feel. Yeah, Nikki, I wanted to say, one, Nikki, I'm really thankful that you took the opportunity to sit down with us. As someone who has been following and participating, I've been seeing you from afar and reading a lot about your reading and hearing your voice with all of the media that's surrounding, especially the uprisings that are happening within the city of Detroit. And in some of that reading, and I don't want this to seem strange, but I found a very a personal connection to some of the narratives I heard in your activism coming up um, in middle school and high school. And being someone who is very outspoken and connected to literature and reading, it, I'm always interested how people, when we are seeing them in their activist role now, when they see these powerful upfront people, the histories that brought them there. Could you tell me a little bit about founding and what was around the Black Millennial Book Club? Oh, this is, <laughs> people always want to talk about this. I can always tell, uh, I can weed out the good reporters from the bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, I'm not. I'm not sure where that lands me exactly. <laughs> well, no, you know, it just means you did your research. So yeah, I found it. So I I uh, have a dual degree in English and African American studies, and so coming out of my senior year, I founded uh, something called the Black Millennial Book Club to kind of create a space to to really like explore the Black experience uh, in America through literature. But the interesting thing is I had did a relaunch and I got like a brand and all these wonderful things. And then quarantine happened and I was like, oh, this is this is good for the book club. So many people are gonna join. It's gonna be this really mm -hmm. like great space. And then the murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor happened. And so the book club has, has been certainly the least of my concern. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. and I haven't had any real time to devote to it. So. And I, that's absolutely understandable. And there's so many things I want to talk to you about. But just, I think what spoke to me about that is I grew up as sort of a bookish Black person. I know a lot of times 
there are, you know, these monolithic ideas about what it means to be black. So when you were saying like utilizing literature as revolutionary and as uh, like radical tools to change, what were some of your inspirations and, and what kind of things were you thinking about reading? What kind of things were you inspired to share with people? Um, because I think that also helps us get a better picture of where your mindset is in, in dealing with kind of what it means to be a person of color in a country that doesn't place us in that kind of educational, literary minded pursuit of things. Yeah, I mean, I think there's kind of a, a twofold situation. And so like, it's absolutely important for us to study the history of struggle in this country. Because what we're told, like so often, uh, this whitewashing of the civil rights movement, this whitewashing of even the Civil War, and the way that we're told change has happened in this country is, is often a lie. Like we're told, you know, Lyndon B. Johnson and King were best friends. And <laughs> we're told Rosa Parks was this tired old woman, even though she had a long political career of resistance before the Montgomery bus boycott, right? We're told that, you know, the Civil War wasn't about racism and slavery. It was just the South was afraid for their economy. Um, we're told that, you know, Lincoln freed the slaves and not about the fact that the slaves freed themselves through resistance and through determination and, and their sheer will to continue to fight for their freedom. Right. So I think that that's that's really important for anybody trying to understand the progress that we have made, you know, how we get things like the civil rights, you know, how we how how black people get the right to vote and what that history actually looked like and what that actually took. You know, particularly as I see things of people like posting images of Bloody Sunday before it got bloody and trying to say things like, oh, this is what a protest looked like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and they completely ignore the fact that that protest was met with police violence, right? And, and so I think it's essential. It's essential for anybody truly looking at how progress and change happens in this country and how it is always, how this country was founded, in fact, was through mass resistance. And so that's that's like really important. It's just it's just really important. The other thing is is yeah. a lot of the rhetoric that we see from our opponents is not new. So in terms of the outside agitator rhetoric, we see governors and mayors of the South saying that people in the North need to keep their kids at home and uh, their outside agitators as they're doing the freedom rides, as they're coming down to make the case for black people having the right to vote, as they're coming down to help integrate lunch counters, as they're coming down into other communities to stand up next to their brothers and sisters, right? So this is, it's interesting because we're, these things are not new, but if we studied the history a little bit, we would know that the reason why some of these uh, rhetoric is out and why they're using it so much is because the thing that works, right, is massive resistance. The thing that works is coming next to your brothers and sisters and saying, you know, we're here in defense of the lives of black and brown people and oppressed people, no matter what. I think that's one of the most amazing things that's come out of this latest stage of resistance to police brutality 
and the protest for Black Lives is that we've we've gotten the opportunity. More people, it seems like, have taken on the opportunity to take a more critical look at the history of our institutions, the history of certain systems, and the history of of uh, the country itself, really. And and we're finding out um, those of us who you know who haven't already been involved in those circles are finding out that more more than we thought has been whitewashed, and you know it's it's really creating this. Uh, new energy around the resistance that's happening uh, right now. Could you, at speaking about that, like we're, we're witnessing the beginning of a, the response to this mass resistance that's happening this summer. And I'm curious, and I know you've probably had this narrative, you've been <laughs> expressing this narrative over and over, but could you tell us a little bit about, we'll work towards where we're at today, but what was the catalyst for you and joining uh the going out into the streets and uh founding being the co-founder of detroit will breathe and how it has evolved from the may 25th killing of george floyd to you know where we're at three months in um with every day being out in the streets (laughs) i know i wish that i was like a better speaker than i am I, i think that there's a few things like the the murder of george floyd coming days after the central park incident so there's mm-hmm. the you know there's the central park incident where the young man well he's he wasn't a young man but the the gentleman is like walking his dog there's bird patient. watching yeah he's bird watching and there's mm-hmm. a white woman walking her dog and the dog isn't supposed to be in the park and they get some some altercation happens and she calls the police and she's like performing weaponizing like her whiteness right and her white mm-hmm. womanhood in particular as a threat to him because she understands Mm -hmm. how this could end for him. And so this is happening. And in the wake of like black people across the nation (laughs) processing this, we get the murder of George Floyd by these former police officers as they hunt him. I mean, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery as they like hunt him through their like white suburban neighborhood. And then we get the murder of George Floyd and we get the murder of Breonna Taylor. It, it, there's 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 kind of when things like this happen there's two things so people come out to the streets right to stand with their brothers and sisters in those cities and say we're demanding justice for the life that you took but then there's also a reckoning with the fact that there also needs to be like we don't get to abdicate the 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 criminals in our own city. Like we don't get to abdicate the Detroit Police Department of their crimes. And we don't get to abdicate, you know, Chief Craig and uh, absolve, like they don't get to be absolved of their crimes and they don't get to make it a singular issue and separate themselves from what happened in Minneapolis and separate themselves from what happened in Louisville because they are one. Um, And so what that means for us on the local front is like we're we're fighting a twofold issue and we're resisting on every level. We're resisting locally, we're resisting nationally. And how do you feel we the Detroit Will Breathe Coalition is hap- is right now in that moment um you guys are continuing to make, take a stand as it, it's it's always so it's heartening and it's disheartening simultaneously to see one, this continuous showing of support and coming out and people making their voices heard, but also the continual disconnect from those who we are speaking to as they are continuing to destroy black and brown bodies days, months into these protests and 
these uprisings and these demonstrations. How do you feel at this point where you are with Detroit Will Breathe in Detroit? At so this I moment? think we've seen huge victories, right? So we've seen the first thing is obviously the breaking of the curfew. So in the same way that Minneapolis and LA and all these other places uh, initially had a curfew in the first few days of protest, Detroit had one. But what we know about these curfews is that they're they're racist by design. They're designed to trample on the rights of people to uh, to protest, right? Because the the Constitution doesn't mm. say you have the right to protest only between the hours of blah and blah and only um, it, within five miles of your home. No, the Constitution says you have the right to assemble and the right to protest and the right to free speech. And so any any imposition of a curfew is to silence the voices of the people and to try to repress the movement from becoming bigger. So the first victory that we saw was one opposing the curfew that quite frankly, DPD was using to harass and brutalize protesters and also anyone else who happened to be on the streets. And so that had to be opposed and we won that fight. They had to, uh, uh, they didn't lift it, but they refused to enforce it. Uh, the next thing that we saw was the building of a broad coalition. So we had a march in Southwest Detroit, which over 30 organizations had signed on to. It, it was it was a beautiful moment, but what it what it did for the Detroit Police Department was enrage them because we're just so bold and so resilient, and so they tried to run us over with with SUVs. <laughs> uh, and then we see Saturday a few nights ago they charge they charge our protests with tear gas with batons. You know they're macing people, pepper spraying people directly to the face. Um, they're beating people who are already detained. They hold us outside for 16 hours. You, you know, there, there's we, we see this brutality, but this is who they are. This is who they've always been. What we see when people decide that that fear tactic doesn't work anymore, when people decide that they're more tired of injustice than they are of like being beat down by police, we see victory. We see the releasing of Grace, the 15-year-old girl um, who was detained for for not doing her homework. And why do we know that that was a victory of this movement? Well, because to be quite frank, there's a million Graces. And the only reason they're not out is because we don't know their names and the movement wasn't able to, to prioritize them, right? And that's the difference between Grace and, and elsewhere. We see Priscilla Slater in Harper Woods and how her case Harper Woods was completely silent on and how the the mayor who had been in office since 1997 was forced to resign in the wake of this movement that really exposed his racism and called it out and said, you don't get to be mayor of a city that's 58% black and be a racist, right? Um, and so now the deputy chief and another officer have been fired for covering up this case. Um, so, so we've had We've had massive victories. We've had massive victories locally and on a national scale. Let's be in truth, when Minneapolis was fighting by themselves, they didn't have officers charged. But in the wake of a national movement, you see the arrest and charging of Derek Chauvin, right? And so we've gotta be really clear about what it means and about the importance of 
having a national front of resistance and how that aids to the fights that people are fighting on a national scale, but also the specific things locally. I want to ask a little more about, if I could, Saturday Night Nakia. And the other thing that occurs to me is that, you know, since they had since they had the sit down, um, the city, the mayor's office sat down with. I don't know if you were there, but I know that uh, Tristan was was um, part of that talk. And there was a moment when it seemed like they were going to offer some sort of uh, response to the demands that Detroit Will Breathe has put out. But since then, it 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 it, it occurs to me that it's been. On that front, it's been the city and the chief have been beyond quiet as far as the demands, as far as uh, respecting or responding to the demands. Has there been any any response at all from the city since since that initial uh, that initial uh, that initial conversation? The thing that we made very clear was we do not speak for um, this movement, and and really any activist or politician or preacher who thinks that they're going to broker a backroom deal um, on behalf of a movement, right, is somebody who should be questioned. And so the unwillingness mm-hmm. of Chief Craig and the mayor to come out to the streets and to address publicly the concerns that people have, how we see a city <laughs> where, what was it, 86% of DPD officers aren't from Detroit, and that that concern not being addressed publicly, uh, how we see a city where the police chief, like the DPD shoots four people in under three weeks. And every single time the police chief rules that justify how we see officers attempting to run over protesters in SUVs, how we see them just continuing to lie, but also aligning themselves with Trump and his operation legend, tough on crime pursuit and just being Mm. unwilling to come out and publicly engage with people, not a press conference, not people that they've handpicked to stand up there next to them and and agree and nod, but really engage with the citizens. It's, It's disturbing and it's disgusting, but it also just shows the power of this movement and the fear of Mayor Duggan and of Chief Craig of being exposed, mm-hmm. and that was how that was how the the uh, action started on Saturday night. Was that uh, that was the action that began with the protest specifically around Operation Legend? I wonder if have we seen any any indications of of uh, increased on um, that sort of increased federal presence on the streets as, as you've been out over the past uh, several nights. We're on day. Remind us what day we're on. Too. It's ninety. I know we're beyond ninety. You what know, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> it's okay. It's, we know it's over 90. I think it's 89. I think today's day 89. Okay. But have you seen any, 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 any presence, uh, any, any presence beyond the DPD on the streets have you, as you've been? Uh... So that's a great question. I don't, you know, I'm not like, I don't necessarily know who works for who, particularly yeah. because they all wear the same thing or they're just plain clothes. They never identify themselves. And what they did Saturday was everybody covered their names. There's there's no there's really no way of knowing. I, I suspect not though. And again, what we've said, the standpoint of Detroit Will Breathe has been our concern around the the presence of federal agents is not around what they'll do to protesters. It's around the terror that they want to dispense in the communities. It's 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 around these task force 
which target by and large poor black people and poor black neighborhoods and it's it's just a way to have increased police violence right. and so we see they they say they've arrested 22 people and none of these things have anything to do with violent they're parole violations they're like people who have guns <laughs> and and it, it's it is just another excuse for donald trump to try to rain terror into those communities and to let black and brown people know there's a price for standing up and resisting. There's a price you pay for saying, you know, we're not going to take this anymore. Right. So when we hear things, when we hear things like Operation Legend, you know, the the, the risk is, or the or the or the uh, what, what we're standing up against is not just possible or, or probable actions against protesters, but it's also an increased presence of a, an increased police presence and increased surveillance presence in the city as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's particularly disgusting that we have a federal government right now that is championing attacks on black and brown communities and having some war on crime, which always means war on black and brown people. That's what that has always meant. Whenever we hear people say war on crime, Republican or Democrat, it's always meant massive raids and terror in communities, but particularly in a pandemic, in a city that was hit very hard. We lost a thousand people in the month of April alone in the city of Detroit due to coronavirus. And so for Mayor Duggan and Chief Craig to be championing in millions of federal dollars and welcoming that in to beat down people who've already been beat down by poverty and by this uh, coronavirus, in, instead of saying, hey, we need federal funds for health care. We need federal funds so we can figure out the school situation and stop treating Detroit kids like guinea pigs. Hey, we need federal funds because there's still people in the city of Detroit who don't have running water in the middle of a pandemic. We need federal funds because as it stands, there's 4,000 evictions that have been filed with the courts and we don't want to evict 4,000 people. Like, but they haven't done that. They haven't done that. They haven't stood up and said it's wrong for a president to be focusing on an increase in crime and to be, you know, having a witch hunt against black and brown communities instead of looking at ways to really, really help the citizens of those communities. Well, I mean, you see that in in the political play because it's they're playing to the base that is not of those communities, right? They're playing to uh, a segment of the the country that see is is afraid of those communities and instead of saying we're going to help them we're manufacturing a fear to become reelected and that's the, the despicable nature of our political game right now i want to ask you a few things in in this movement at being 89 days in and seeing not only the daily marches but the the public tribunal that happened uh against the police brutality and these mass meetings that are being held as an organizer, you're doing so many things and wearing so many hats. How has one? How is the the how have the mass meetings been going as organizing? How has that functioned in the continuation of these daily? Uh, so, yeah, protests? so the mass meetings are things that happen weekly, and they're really um, an opportunity for the movement to have discussions on where we are, have discussions around where we go from here and really share information and organize. And, and 
they're a wonderful thing. They're a beautiful thing. Again, I, I think, you know, when we look at people who call themselves leaders, self-proclaimed leaders, um, who are just so inaccessible to the people that they're supposed to be leading and so out of touch, certainly a movement that is a movement to win can't function that way. It can't function that way. So mm-hmm. that that's, that's the space um, really that the mass meetings uh, take up in their, in their wonderful and beautiful spaces. Yeah. The tribunal, the tribunal was great. The tribunal was great. It really was a moment of exposing the lies and brutality of DPD. And so certainly we're going to do more of those moving forward. In organizing, what are some of the outside of like the the obvious uh, opposition we have and those we are standing up against? What are some of the obstacles and things? I'm I'm thinking kind of about you know the Montgomery boy bus boycott lasted 381 days, right? We're in 89. We're in a it, Montgomery had a different climate than we do. Um, are are there any? Do you ever think about like the inclement weather? How are we going to sustain this as we go into colder months? How is that? Uh, in organizing, I was thinking like, what are our obstacles that exist beyond just the reform we're seeking? Yeah, certainly there's obstacles in organizing, but there always has been. And it's, it's interesting you bring up the Montgomery bus boycott. <laughs> you know, we, again, it's it's important for us to study our history, right? And so in Stride Towards Freedom, which is the book that King wrote about the Montgomery bus boycott, he flushes out kind of the political climate and the economical climate of Montgomery. And he talks about the division among among the leaders. He talks about where the people are and the fears um, and some of the reasons, you know, why people, why things at Montgomery didn't happen sooner, essentially, but also the obstacles in sustaining the movement. Um, and so certainly we see and we face some of those issues now. But by and large, this is a movement that has said, you know, we prioritize those who are oppressed and we prioritize those who are under attack. And so what we're seeing is people really just being fed up with this country and being fed up with the leadership in this country and understanding that years of kind of failed progress, right? Or change not happening as as quickly as we needed to happen. Um or leaders and elected politicians failing us, quite frankly. People people are just like disillusioned. And mm-hmm. when people are this disillusioned, and even in the wake of this this struggle, we got what happened in Kenosha. We got police. Uh, we got what's happening in Detroit where they're they're still feeling like they can act with impunity. The problem though is that when that threat of violence doesn't work anymore, you know, they've got a problem on their hands. Because when mm-hmm. people are determined to win, whenever people have been determined to win um, and have really built a mass movement in this country, it's worked. It's worked. So in organizing, have you and this is I'm I'm somebody who really follows uh, the risk, not only what is happening, but the response and the, the different waves of the community response, support and fear of a, a movement that's happening in their streets. Um, as an organizer in this time, especially in the city of Detroit, are you seeing any of communities that are having a little bit of resistance to those uh, marches happening in their communities, in their in their neighborhoods, maybe, uh, you know, reaching out and helping educate if they are having 
a little bit of a pushback to these things? So this has always been an interesting question. So I, I, I promise you, I did not know. I'm a poor girl. I grew up very poor. <laughs> and that what that means is that the, the, the pockets of this city that I've lived in have been the poorest pockets. I did not know that there were people who were like police apologists or who would make the argument that DPD was different and that they weren't brutal. I did not know that until now, hearing all of these like people who are self-proclaimed leaders, people who are in bed with the police, <laughs> make that argument. So it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's definitely an interesting position to be in. You, you go to the majority Detroit, right? The, <laughs> the Detroit that is in, in impoverished. The Detroit, like, you know, Chief Craig was like, oh, this new anti-police rhetoric. And I was like, there's nothing new about it. There's, there's nothing new. You go to the red zone, you go to a, a community like a Fitzgerald, you go to <laughs> communities that are, are riddled with poverty and been starved of resources in this city. That's not new. The terror and the violence of the police is not new. Anti-policing uh, being being anti-police is not a new sentiment. And so it's it's always really interesting to me, people who are claiming that DPD is some they killed they killed Malice Green. They mm -hmm. killed Ayanna Stanley Jones. They partnered with ICE and they murdered him. Like th these are things that are not uh, a secret. Problem is when the, you know, Channel 7 and Fox 2 and, and Channel 4, when they do their interviews, they treat uh, Mayor Duggan, who is a mayor in a city of, of what what do we have? What are we at? Like 980,000 people? A mayor that won with 70,000 votes, mm. right? And why is that? Because this is a city that is disillusioned and that understands the failures of these elected politicians and that by and large, has no faith in, in the, the election process, right? So now we've got this outside agitator mayor pretending to speak for communities he's never stepped foot in. We've got this mayor pretending to be in touch with these citizens that he's not in touch with. He's not in touch with, with mm -hmm. these people. He's, <laughs> you know, I've ne he's, never, he's never been on my block. So we, we've got them focusing and treating uh what the chief and what the mayor says is fact and when they do do mm -hmm. interviews with community members it's people that are hand-picked people who work for the mayor people who work with the police they're not knocking on doors on on uh troster street on the east side they're not knocking on doors <laughs> on uh six mile in san juan where hakeem littleton was murdered they're just not doing that kind of work that's interesting that you bring that up, and I wanted to, and and I'm I don't want to harp on this too long. I know I would like, uh, and I know Eric is very interested. We want to talk about some of the work that you've been doing around the Hakeem Littleton murder and uh, a lot of the incredible force coming from that incident. But I I asked the question kind of about you know engaging with communities is specifically this was brought to my attention after the Hakeem Littleton killing. Are you familiar with a group called New Era Detroit? Um, I know that they exist, yes. I was introduced to during the the reaction to the Hakeem Littleton killing, and they're a large group. I didn't realize they're like they've got fifty thousand followers and they're really prominent on social media. It was my first introduction. But what I was seeing was a 
vehement pushback from the a, a black, predominantly black community online anyway, towards what they saw as a as kind of an intrusion into their neighborhood by the the protesters. Now they were speaking pretty straightforward or, or, or specifically about, you know, uh, non POC protesters, but there was this sense that they were, they felt that there was a, mi- a misconnection between the community and the protest itself. And I'm curious how we bridge that because we know we can stand back and say, this community is being terrorized by police. But if that community pushes back in that moment and feels that that narrative isn't correct. How do we, as organizers and people pushing this, engage with and cross that bridge? Yeah, I'll, I'll say uh, a few things. I think that there has been, quite frankly, a disgusting and disturbing erasure of of my voice, of the voices of Tristan Taylor, of Jay Bass, of the people who are actually in the front of this. And so for any anybody to claim that Detroit will breathe is is led by white people and to to hold on to that rhetoric that like that was put forth by the mayor and the police chief who who ignore you know like who just ignore our existence in order to push their like their story and their narrative right so i think that there's a twofold issue when people are claiming that there's an intrusion into the neighbor. This I live here. I've lived here my entire life. Jay Bath has lived here his entire life. Tristan Taylor like has lived here his entire life. And so I just reject that erasure of my voice. I reject that. I think people making that claim is so interesting to me because certainly I hope they're not seeking to claim that they speak more for a community than I do. Um, I'm not trying to claim that I speak more to the community than they do, right? Like, uh, we don't exist in a monolith. However, what they're doing is aiding in the erasure of of our voices, and that's not that's not cool. That's whack. So, so that right on the on the one hand, on the other hand, is we've got to have an understanding of history. We've got to have an understanding of history, and what does it mean to be in a position where there are white people who are just as fed up and who want to help support this fight. Like, what does it mean historically for us to be in this position? And what what has happened in those times when people have leveraged that? When SNCC did the Freedom Rides, what 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 has that what has that led to? Right. So I, I think I, I don't know if that answered your question, but it does. I think more of because it does speak to kind of like there are wedges driven into our communities when, you know, coalition building and coming together does, there is that threat of if we all come together and we can recognize whether it's through historical reckoning or just seeing the true face value of how we are being treated, that if we unite, then there is no, there's literally no way to stop us. And when there are those divisions that rise, whether it's in the narrative of who's protesting or whether or not you know, each protest is in the best interest. How do we bridge those gaps in understanding to continue to manifest those coalitions and, and bridging the gaps in, in those narratives? 
Yeah, I'll say I've never, uh, and, and a lot of those people um, that you're referring to, I had heard or people were telling me that they were also making posts about how the chokehold was wrong and they're going to make sure something is done on it. And, and I find it really interesting because none of those people have reached out to me about it, mm. to talk about it. So how they how they are handling something <laughs> is it just begs the question of, well, who are you going to to get answers from? Because it's certainly not us. It's not the people that the violence has been perpetrated against. And so on the question of like how we build unity, I would never take the word of the police chief and of the mayor as fact over, uh, you know, I would never take that as fact and perpetrate that out into the community. I certainly would never try to justify violence and harm being done to protesters because what it means to be in this movement that is saying we're standing up in defense of black and brown lives whenever they're under attack, it also means when Black Lives Matter, they matter all the time. So whether you politically agree or not with us, it's really interesting people who aren't prepared to stand up and say, okay, but the police don't get to shoot tear gas into residential streets where children are and provide no aid to those families and, and to that community, but who instead want to focus on pushing the narrative or, or sounding uh, just like the mayor and the police chief. That that's that's you know that's just that's just an interesting uh, decision to make, in my opinion. I wanted to bring up Nakia uh, before before uh, hopefully we have time to move on to talk about the uh, the Hakeem Littleton uh, murder in our next print issue of Riverwise. Gloria House, who we're honored to have on our editorial team, I know you've worked with through the Coalition for Police Transparency and Accountability. She put together an amazing piece that's, that's centered around a statement that was put forth to the city council in 1998 when she was part of the Detroit Coalition Against Police Brutality. Um, and she, in this piece, she does a, a wonderful job of, of connecting the stage of protests that we're at now, which, which we're looking at as maybe going beyond reform, and the work that was done uh, in the 90s and 2000s by the uh, Coalition Against Police Brutality. Have you have you guys had a chance to connect with the coalition and and you know talking about history and talking about the fact that you know what what we're up against is is has been persistent for decades and generations? Um, have you had a chance to talk to the coalition about their work they've done in around the city? Yeah, so the coalition um, against police brutality. I know that a few of their members did some interviews where uh, they were very receptive towards us. I think this goes to speak to kind of the varied political perspectives that are out there mm -hmm. right now, right? They envision a working relationship with the police. They envision reform. That's not where I am. That's not where Detroit will breathe is, you know, we, what we're really fighting for is one full accountability, right? But also even beyond that, the defunding of mm -hmm. the police. And so there's just a difference in, in kind of the angles and, and, uh, the approaches. But this, again, is something that we see throughout history. And, and again, King talks about this a lot in Strive Towards Freedom. It's just the differences in what people hope to achieve and where where people thought change needed to be rooted in, right? So this is not a new thing. And it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad, <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not even a bad mm -hmm. thing. It's just we have differences. We don't politically agree. In terms of the Coalition for Police Accountability and Transparency, 
um, which is a coalition that I, I sit on and that Detroit Will Brief sits on as an organization. Again, that coalition, as it stands right now, is the coalition for that, for police accountability and transparency. And so we're able to sit on that coalition, but we also have to function autonomously mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, what we want is full accountability. What we want is the defunding of the police. And so that, that you know, there's, there's, there's some differences. So you brought up the uh, the investigation that uh, the coalition, now we're talking about the Coalition for Police Transparency and Accountability, recently formed around the request for an independent investigation around the killing of Hakeem Littleton. The coalition has done an amazing job putting together content, much of it centered around a video, which is uh, narrated by Gloria House. And being able to bring a little deeper perspective into, you know, an incident, which for most people, you know, it's, it's easy to just kind of shut down the analysis right after you see the beginning of the video or hear the beginning of how the incident went down and not really think deeper about what happened throughout the video and the discrepancies between what happened in the video and what we've been told by Chief Craig. Can you talk a little bit about, about Nakia, how that coalition came together and the forming of the content and the, and the, and the analysis that uh, has resulted in this request to not only the attorney general for the state of Michigan, but into but, uh, towards the Wayne County prosecutor, Kim Worthy, as well. So, again, right, what what this movement has said is that when black lives matter, they matter all the time. Mm -hmm. And so there was a knee jerk reaction which is understandable because brutality and justification of that brutality is what the, who the police have always been. It's what they've always done. Right. And it, it's worked. <laughs> it's worked. Mm -hmm. And so people saw Hakeem with that gun and the police said, Oh, well, shooting, you know, shooting in the direction of an officer is justification for your murder. People kind of fell for that, but this is a movement that was like, well, Here's the thing. Even if you shoot at somebody, you should not be delivered a kill shot to the head after you've already been detained. Right. They had complete control of that situation. Mm -hmm. And so that's murder. That's murder. And it's unacceptable. And they no longer get to run through communities and do whatever they want to do and not be held accountable. And so the coalition is a broad coalition of people from kind of different sectors of of law and, you know, uh, former um, councilwoman Joanna Watson is, is on that coalition. And so it's a, it's a broad coalition. It is demanding an independent investigation because we need answers as to one, who were the officers that were involved? Why was his body taken away so soon? Why was he shot in the head after he was already on the ground and you can clearly see the gun being kicked away? Why do we not have full audio why do we not have full video? And so at a time where people are demanding accountability, these are the types of things that we're demanding. We're no longer going to take the police's word for it, right? They don't get to release portions of videos uh, and determine what view they want to show us and then make up lies and say, well, you can't see this in the video, but we promise it happened. And that's good. No, no. Amas and I were discussing the Hakeem Littleton killing yesterday, and I, you know, there's there's also the the aspect of the fact that, you know, if we can get to that point in the analysis when we look at defunding the police, because a lot of people will say, well, you know, their argument is, well, look at, you know, we can't defund the police. Look at, you know, look at this incident here. But even even beyond the discrepancies, which obviously are extremely important 
in the video and in the, in the incident, the discrepancies between what, what happened and how, what we're being told, there's also an opportunity to talk about resources being resources being taken away from the police or being reallocated from the police department to services that community people, we in the community really need. Was, has that been a, a part of your discussion in, in the coalition around, or can you see that opportunity as well between the Hakeem Littleton killing and making that argument for reallocating funds? Absolutely. You know, but it isn't just the ha- Hakeem, you know, it's not just Hakeem Littleton. It's, it's, it's really just so clear in the murder of Darian Walker, right? Who, who was a man that was mentally ill and who was clearly experiencing a mental breakdown and in the middle of psychosis and was, was wielding a sword or a dagger uh, in the street. And, and you see DPD murder that man and they're claiming, well, anytime anybody has a weapon, it's okay to murder them, right? The problem though, is that I'm not a mental health professional. However, because I live in a city that is deprived so heavily of mental health resources, I have so much experience with people who are mentally ill. And even I know that the way to deescalate those situations with someone who is clearly experiencing a different reality and who is not even living the same, living in the same mental world as you is not to point a gun at their head and scream at them. Mm. which is what the officers did, which was their only form of de-escalation, right? And it's just unacceptable when you've got $317 million. It's just unacceptable for that to be the training and the the methods of de-escalation. And I want to add that there are like, in these mental hospitals, the, the nurses, the social workers, they're not armed. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yet they're able mm-hmm. to de-escalate people every single day, every single day, because we know that it's possible uh, without it leading to the murder of people. Mm-hmm. And so this is why we're saying defund them. They need to be defunded. That money needs to go towards getting people the mental health that they need. So if somebody is in the middle of a psychosis, a psychotic episode, they can be dealt with by somebody who knows what to do versus somebody whose only reaction to everything is to point a gun at someone's head and shoot them. You know, we're also just in a time where like the the public education system is, is horrible and it's particularly suffering in Detroit. The ways that you prevent crime, like we want to talk about crime and the fact that the police do not prevent crime from happening. All they do is criminalize and it's two different things and how we prevent crime from happening is putting funds into opening back up those libraries that were closed putting funds into opening back up schools and how about creating schools that are adequate and creating different social and community programs people need rec centers people need jobs people need health insurance that's actually what prevents crime from happening and what stops people from going to drastic measures in order to feed themselves and their families in order to survive. Nikki, I want to ask you, where, where, where will Detroit will breathe be tonight? What are the plans for this week? This week. So tonight we have a, an organizers meeting tomorrow. Um, we're going to be at Michigan and third at 6 p.m. And we are demanding that DPD drop all charges against protesters. We're demanding Chief Chris resignation. 
And we are also showing solidarity with the young man that was uh, shot and paralyzed in Kenosha, um, Wisconsin. And this mm-hmm. Saturday we have uh, an event that's going to be large. It's with some some uh, organizers with uh, different local unions. It's going to be a panel discussion at 1 p.m. I believe that we're going to to march earlier in the day at around 11:30. And so there's going to be uh, food at this event. There's going to be an opportunity to to discuss kind uh, of kind of the cross sections between what's happening in with some of the labor unions right now as well as like the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. All right. We appreciate all the work you're doing, Nakia and the coalition. Do you have any last words, Amas, you want to throw in? Yeah, uh, I really appreciate you talking with us and being so passionate and eloquent and the work just continues. And I'm so happy to have someone like you on the streets speaking with and for the streets uh, every day as you continue to organize and build and unify. One thing I'm always interested with folks because this year is so heavy for all of us for so many reasons, the pandemic and the social uprisings. But is there anything that you do to self-care to take care of yourself in the moments when you aren't organizing or on the streets to make sure that you're doing well, that you're keeping mentally healthy and physically healthy? Yeah, I wish I had a better answer to that. But, (laughs) you know, I mean, I'm a huge Drake fan. I know everyone's like, what? Uh, hey, no, that new song slaps. I love that new song. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge Drake fan. I, I also really enjoy Baths. But you know, th- this is um, this is difficult work. This is difficult work, but it's also been the best thing for my mental health. It's been the best thing for like my emotional well being because mm-hmm. we're gonna win, and we are winning, and we've won so much. We've won so much locally and nationally in the past 89 days, more than than probably what we've been able to win in the in the past 40 years, and and that is really really empowering and inspiring. And if you know we can take step backs to really think about our victories and really live in those, uh, it's it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's that's powerful to hear. I appreciate you saying that. It's it's important for people to step into the positivity and, you know, reclaim their joy and optimism in a year that has really tested all of that. And there is that sense of joy when you, you know, I've been, I've been out there a couple of times, but when you were in Southwest, Detroit World Breathe actually came down our block and um, I had met uh, Tristan up at the, uh, at the fourth precinct to talk. The march had proceeded from there into the neighborhood. And it was, you know, it's 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 uplifting. It's uplifting in the sense that you know we're, you're you're working for something that you know is good and know is right, and it's uplifting in the sense that you're with a group of people who you know who feel strongly the same way. So it was it's, it's amazing to see and it's amazing to be a part of. And we we thank you so much for inspiring us with uh, with this sustained this sustained actions. Nakia Wallace, thank you so much for joining Riverwise the podcast. Um, and hopefully this is, I, I've been saying this a lot, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping this is part one of, of a series of talks, perhaps. You know, we talked to Tristan a couple of weeks ago and so much has happened since then. So this is the kind of work you're doing demands um, regular coverage if we can get it. So we hope to speak to you again real soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much.
so much for listening. This is Eric from Riverwise Magazine. As we navigate these challenging times of collective mourning and protest and transformation, we're grateful to be part of a vital network of community-based media. Your continued support is vital. So we just want to take a minute and recognize the people keeping the Riverwise podcast afloat. Those people include the Riverwise Collective, the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center, Kari Frazier, and the Detroit is Different Network. We thank them for their technical and creative support. We thank Heidi Osgood, L'Oreal West, Valerie Jean for their help in getting the podcast out to the public. We want to thank Reverend Joan Ross for her continued encouragement and inspiration at WNUC. Bryce Detroit, thank you for letting us use your track out here now from the album Structured Water. You should all look for it. And we want to thank the Detroit Journalism Engagement Fund, which is facilitated through the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, who have supported Riverwise and this podcast and the writing work workshop since 2018. Most importantly, we want to thank you, all the, the listeners, the readers, the people who are building community, building relationships out in the city of Detroit. We thank you for your support through the magazine, through the podcast. And we look forward to bringing more valuable content to you in 2020 and beyond. Peace.